Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. In times of great peril, the world must call upon the services of a singular individual. Welcome to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I'm waiting to be impressed. The greatest adventurer who ever lived has been recruited to find a madman. He's called the Phantom. To stop him, you must lead a team like nothing the world has seen. <laughs> Thanks. Eyes open, boy. Can't protect you all the time. Dr. Jekyll, at your service. Cheers. Extraordinary gentlemen, indeed. And women. Our transportation has arrived. You have four days. And the game is on. This year... So what are we dealing with? Unstoppable assassins. Eyes open, boy. Can't protect you all the time. They're indestructible! 20th Century Fox invites you... Take the world! ...to discover an adventure... I don't know how to drive myself! ...in a league of its own. John Connery. I doubt you measure danger the way I do. The League. That was naughty. Another commissioned episode, and really, we have to say thank you to everyone who has supported one of these. Our vacation to Orlando has been a lot easier to plan with the extra funds. We won't be going hungry, and we won't be missing some of those juicy once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, thanks to you guys. And this episode was brought into being by Chris Finnick who wanted to know what we had to say about this one a while back, but then on reading my movie a day on the Van Helsing movie just kind of sealed the deal. And he was like, right, if I want to hear about any movie, it's the 2003 attempt to bring the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen to the big screen. So here you go, Chris. It was directed by the man behind the first Blade movie, Stephen Norrington. And it was supposed to be the start of a new franchise for 20th Century Fox, who were sitting pretty with X-Men at this point. But it ended up being the first and last Sean Connery was never in another movie again, and Stephen Norrington never directed again. From that point of view, this was an unmitigated disaster, ruinous for all involved, and leaving critics and audiences confused and derisive. It's really stupid, really silly, and anytime somebody suggests that superhero movies ruined Hollywood, I can't help but think of this standard of film, aimed largely at idiots, and delivering entirely predictable thrills with terrible effects, and think this is what has been replaced by the current crop of superhero movies. Ergo, superhero movies didn't ruin Hollywood, they just got way better. Despite all of the above, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is still pretty okay in some places. There's one or two bright spots, and it even made me emotional a few times. In other words, in different hands, with different choices made, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen could have been a good movie? Question, Question mark? mark. <laughs> Let's take a look what went into the making of it, and what happens in the film. I would just make one small point with regards to that. You said it 
it's aimed largely at idiots. Um, I would say it's aimed largely at no one. They had no idea who their audience was. Well, you're right, actually. The whole aimed largely at... I'm, I'm taking aimed largely at idiots because of a lot of script decisions. Mm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I know where that's coming from. But there's stuff in here which is obviously for, for literary geeks, mm. but then they go, well, you folks who don't know literature shouldn't feel left out, so we're going to just name drop something so that you, you're all on the same page. And I've said it before, folks. If you can't do it... Don't do it. Although if you can't do it with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, you shouldn't be making League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. See, I I referenced um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in uh, Steamheart as its contributory in terms of steampunky vehicle. I'm acknowledging the heritage there. I didn't cheapen that by explaining it. I went into what one character thought about the book and why it inspired him and um, was very colourfully evocative about it. That's really all you need to do. You don't need to necessarily just say the name of a, of a book and then look at the camera and then move on. That's a really cretinous way of moving, and they do that so many times. They do. They do. I, I had here... Every time they say anything that's like a... a clanging reference to a specific novel from the uh, 19th century yeah I take a shot arg afterwards arg. and the a's got more and more and more as arg. <laughs> well yeah like it's that kind of reference was just making us make a sound in the end it was like they, they would say something and we'd just go and then by the end we were going like frankenstein's monster fire bad puns bad i think puns would be okay or no actually hang on it depends uh, how they're handled. Oh, wait, wait. There's there's one that... Um, oh, there you go. Um, they, they mentioned the Phantom to uh, um, Sean Connery, and he goes, very operatic. Yes? He's just called the Phantom, and there is no other reference anywhere in the film to him belonging to any kind of opera house. I mean, basically, at that point, M should have gone, his name is the Phantom. Has a taste for the operatic, as you might imagine. I mean, it's slightly better way of, you know, saying it's a taste for the theatrical, like you. Leaves a calling card. Da -da -da -da. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're very aware that they've got a James Bond in this. They are. They are. Which, obviously, when it was written, he wasn't a James Bond. No. He was Alan Quarterman. There's so much... I think what kind of makes me have a little bit of a soft spot for this film, mm -hmm. despite the fact that it's terribly appalling and... I'm sure we'll elaborate on this later on, but it's it's basically you can see the genesis of various superhero film various really ideas good ones in it, and it's almost like other filmmakers watched this and went, "Give it here." We'll just take these <laughs> elements here and do them right this time. Indeed. And then in the meantime, we'll other bad films like The Mummy have come along and gone, we want to do that stuff too. And it's like, no, 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 it's been done right now. You don't, like, do other stuff. Indeed. I mean, that's when, by the way, when copycatting is a good thing. Mm. Uh, when you take something that's been done badly in the past. That's why remakes of bad, like, films that were mismanaged, like a remake of this, for example... Um, could feasibly be way better. There's just there's little point in remaking really, really good films. Absolutely. What's that thing There are about a few you, exceptions. You learn more from a bad film than you do from a good film. Yeah, I suppose and that you, does apply to... if you to... try and remake a classic that everybody adores, yeah. all you can do is fall short. All you can do is, is put a, the best, a different spin on it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You're, you're never going to top it if like, it's already loved. If I, it's terrible, though... I could do a Peter Pan film, and it's not necessarily a remake, uh, but a Peter Pan film that very specifically outlines the psychology of this. You know, that, that it cuts back and forth between Wendy in uh, Psychoanalysis with Mr. Freud. Would that be about what time was? Hmm. Possibly. I'd have to check the dates. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, something like that, or, or uh, a Freudian psychologist who uh, was, was Jung in operation at that point? This is your he specialty. He would have been, yeah, but I did, not history of. They could be grappling <laughs> over Wendy's brain. <laughs> this is a better movie already. Okay, so um, here is a movie that was killed dead by another film that came out two days beforehand. A swashbuckler of sorts. Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, which no one expected to be all that fantastic, came out two days beforehand and sank it with one cannonball. And it just it, it made me realise that um, Jack Sparrow completely screwed over two Norringtons that week. <laughs> nice. I mean, I bet Stephen Norrington, if he ever watches Curse of the Black Pearl, goes, fucking Jack Sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> Because I mean, he's now looking more like Norrington in three. Well, he got killed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, two's the one where he's like all scrappy and oh, okay. like, all like uh, an old tramp. Yeah. Yeah. I like him better in that one. Yeah. I like him. Uh, yeah. I like Jack Davenport across the board. This was a clunker, and it registered as a clunker with audiences straight away. And and sometimes if there's nothing else on, a clunker can still do okay. can still do okay. Mm. But if there's something fantastic on, a mummy is not going to do okay because a Wonder Woman's playing in the next screen. What? They could have the mummy for the boys that can't go into the all girls Wonder Woman screenings. They could. Do you want to see the mummy? I'll just no. come back for Wonder Woman some of the time. <laughs> I, I don't think that the. Uh, um, Angry boys speak like that. Okay. I'm going to get my own Wonder Woman with blackjack and hookers. So, I mean, the, the whole idea that Stephen Norrington didn't work after this, when he had very successfully pulled off Blade, that's saddening. I do wonder, though, the fact that he had very successfully pulled off Blade, um, whether there were other factors involved, because it, it takes a lot, really to dump somebody out of the Hollywood turn entirely. Yeah. Um, He'll never work in this town again. (laughs) He's a bloke, so he Mm. would have been given chances. Um, But, I mean, you've... You said about... Friggin' writer of Speed 2 just wrote the the latest Pirates movie, and it's all right. Mm, Yeah. Aaron Kruger keeps getting work. Although he didn't get this Transformers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sean Connery also didn't do anything after this, but that was because he was retiring. You know, there were were other elements involved. They didn't go, Sean, you were awful in LXG. Nobody's going to ever hire you again. No, it's a two-way retirement pact. Me and Norrington, we're going out like this. (laughs) And then he jumped out of a tree onto him. (laughs) (laughs) That's how Sean Connery gets you. But, I mean, really, the reason that I have a soft spot for LXG is actually mainly down to Connery. Because um, this is his swan song. This is him going... He's an old tiger who's uh, um, nearing, who's out on his last hunt. And there are a couple of moments when I'm just like, oh, we're never going to see him again after this. It begins with a steampunk Fox logo, and it takes a lot to make steampunk work as an aesthetic. 
you almost have to... I thought you were going to say it takes a lot to make steampunk boring. No, um, quite the opposite. It's, I mean, but steampunk is great and extremely appealing for its fans. For most people, and I do mean that, most people look at steampunk stuff and go, eh, it's campy and annoying to most people. Also, there is, I think... And I'm I'm pretty sure there will be people who go, no, you're wrong. You can do, you know, incredibly eclectic steampunk, and it works fine. But to me, it's always seemed like the the iteration of steampunk that you're going to do needs to be internally consistent. If you're throwing random things in yeah. from here, there, and everywhere that don't match with each other, you can feel the clash. Yeah. Uh, that's why with my world I um, originated it from certain people who were pushing science and tech forwards in this alternate universe I didn't just start everyone wearing clock parts on their hats ultimately it's risky and uh, if I could go back and, and talk to myself and say do you really want to invest your entire writing career in a steampunk universe this only has limited appeal to, to mass audiences I, I don't know I, I, I still might because I, I really love the world that I've created. But the other major thing is that there is a stigma attached to steampunk that is mainly down to it being featured in crap films. Wild Wild West really springs to mind at this point. The Golden Compass, Van Helsing, a series of unfortunate events, the adventures of Baron von Munchausen, the Brothers Grimm, the Steve Coogan version of Around the World in 80 Days, the Paul W.S. Anderson version of... Three Musketeers, Stardust, Sleepy Hollow, Nine, Serenity, Brazil to a degree, City of Ember. An argument could be made for the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes films, Hellboy, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. These are films that have cult followings, that people who love them really love them. But most of the rest of the world goes, eh. In terms of the closest to the top grossing films of all time list, most of them come nowhere near. One of the closest, arguably, although they deal with super, the supernatural far more than tech, there's still some sort of techie elements in there on some level. Pirates of the Caribbean, and indeed Harry Potter. It seems like the way you get steampunk to work as an aesthetic is to make it more magic than tech. This would be why I introduced a lot more of a magical, fantastical world in The Princess Thieves as another angle on New Century. By the way, it is messed up that the 50th highest grossing film of all time is The Secret Life of Pets. What a forgettable 50th. Pretty much anything to do with uh, Jules Verne after the 50s. It's, it's a tough sell each time. Ultimately, I think it would take Marvel doing it and doing it right for people to go, Hey, steampunk! And then everyone jumps on the friggin' steampunk bandwagon. Yeah. I was trying to think of a good Oh, one. yeah. A, a, a Disney? Atlantis. Mm. Again, another failure on their part. Yeah. This is some of the stuff in this is just so random. The fact that you open with turn of the century Nazis, effectively. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, let's get past the logo. Uh, there's a, a tank that does a bank robbery. And it immediately we begin with a, a British Bobby standing in front of the tank, throwing his hand up and going, Stop! No! And this was five years after Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery. I, I refuse to believe, Stephen Norrington, that you don't know that that's hilarious. 
for the wrong reasons. I wasn't entirely certain why he decided to do that because it almost seemed like could have been one of two things. Either look at this British police unarmed, they're utterly uh, ill-equipped to deal with this massive against tank. This. Yeah, they're unarmed. They're not stupid. If they're being faced down by a tank, they will get out of the way. If they're being faced down by a charging horse and cart, they will get out of the way. I mean, it smacks of Tiananmen Square, but that man was young man was making a political statement. So yeah, that's that's cretinous and it's a stupid way to start. And then this tank comes in and smashes the place up and people... Uh, the, Britain says, oh, it was Germany what done it. And then Germany gets struck as well and it's Zeppelin hangers. But <laughs> the Phantom turns up at this time and um, blows them up with a tow missile. Your mistletoe is no match for my tow missile. I don't know why it's got a cable attached to it. He's not yanking anything down doesn't make any sense why is it not just a rocket launcher so anyway this phantom's stalking around the place and he's sort of a figurehead of fear uh, and then we cut straight to kenya in june of 99 after a bunch of newspapers have said that the world is being thrown into chaos obviously the phantom is trying to stir up a world war what's the end game by the way uh, brilliant i don't know it's not very clear he seems to definitely want a world war but I think he also wants to have a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, sorry, he also wants to have his own Army of Extraordinary Henchmen. Mm, I think that's the essence of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was going to say that the fact that they have this whole, you know, it's it's Germany's fault. Germany was a really new nation at yeah. this point. Yeah. Since the Middle Ages, Germany had been a patchwork of free cities and small states within the Holy Roman Empire. In the 1800s, these gradually came together economically and then politically. In 1871, Wilhelm I of Prussia became the emperor of a united Germany. So 1871, 28 years before this is set. I mean, I suppose they're trying to key it in with World War One and World War Two, given that there are people wearing uniforms that are very ss by the way, if you'd like to brush up on this period in history in a really entertaining and fascinating capacity, watch Extra Histories, that's Daniel Floyd, very long-time friend of the show, does all of our Disney shows with us, on The Great War, how World War I started. It's brilliant. Damn sight better than this film. Either way, England is powerless to do anything about this. Cut to Kenya, and uh, we, there's... Um, an agent comes to pick up Sean Connery as Alan Quartermain. Now, if you've ever watched King Solomon's Mines or read King Solomon's Mines, Alan Quartermain comes from a very colonial brand of Indiana Jones type, or Indiana Jones is a refinement of this type of hero. Um, and I think this is best summed up by the fact that Connery, when reflecting on his uh, career, um, says he doesn't want to, uh, to uh, go out adventuring anymore. He's been adventuring before. I've I've lost friends. And I'm like, oh, that's that's really sweet. White men and black. Oh, for fuck's sake, you ruined it. I, I get that he's saying, I'm fine with black men as well. But it's almost like he's saying, I'm not a racist. I have black friends too. That sounds like a line that he might have said in the books. Almost certainly. But that's not a line you want to bring forward. No. Was that the Victorian era being the most racist it could be? That was the Victorian era being the least racist it could be. No, there's... It's there's just no... so tone deaf right now. And it entirely lacks any kind of context. Yeah. 
I've lost friends. White men, the first class of man, and black, the third class of man. The second class is woman. Yeah, then a bunch of uh, guys turn up in armor, and <laughs> so the uh, the guards at the lodge in Kenya are shooting at them, and they go, the bullets ricochet off their bodies, they're invincible, and he goes, they're wearing armor. There, there was armor before this, yes. right? The, what they're wearing is very medieval type armor. Yeah. Um, and the fact that you can hear it Big, heavy plates should stuff. make it rather obvious. Yeah. Um, but again, that, that was something that kind of clashed a little bit because they have this very primitive style of armour, yet their weaponry is ridiculously advanced for 1899. Hmm. Well, yeah, they've got these massive machine guns. Mm. Yeah. Big blocky things. Um, I actually I remember reading King Solomon's Mines. I think it was the Ladybird version when I was a kid. And um, it, it was very sort of, you know, oh, tell how, and I've got a monocle here. That kind of story. And, you know, they, they go and make friends with the tribe. And uh, they convince the tribe to, uh, to help them by saying, and our magic tubes will speak loudly if you don't say that you'll help us. Uh, yeah. It sounds like Heart of Darkness without the existential dread. Yes. But it's, it's very much, you know, an adventure on the Dark Continent. And there's a lot of reasons why Victorian adventures don't translate to now anymore. Because, I mean, like I saw um, one of the worst films I saw this year, and I only saw about a third of it, was The Lost City of Z. I walked out of the cinema. I haven't done that since Johnny English. I was like, you know what? My evening is worth more than this. Fuck this movie. <laughs> Could just have been the fact that Charlie Hunnam was mumbling at... Um, Charlie Hunnam's not having a good year for me either. Charlie Hunnam was mumbling at Robert Pattinson, who had this giant cat weasel beard, and was going on a boat, and then it was it was garbage. But one of the reasons I'm doing New Century at all is to bring the Victorian adventure up to date to address as many of those issues as I possibly can. And to, you know, fuse it with my own personal brand of sci-fi and, uh, and other stuff that I can't go into yet. Yeah. It's, this seems horribly self-serving, but it, just, it's, it very much... I can't just, like, talk about Victorian adventures and steampunk without at least, like, tying it in with how I feel about Victorian adventures. Uh, which is that they are impenetrable to, uh, to modern audiences. So either way, Connery's punching dudes out in this sequence and he's reminding us why he was badass in the first place. And I was trying to uh, figure out like my five favourite Connery performances and none of them are James Bond at all. I don't rate him as James Bond all that much, or at least I don't rate the movies he's in. I think we'll... Probably guess a couple of them. Which ones? Your Oh, my five, yeah. Okay. Connery. Uh, the Rock. Yes. It's got to be one of them. So, uh, second to last. Okay. Second to best. <laughs> okay, all right, you tell me the other four then. But yeah, the way he performs in this, he seems surly and grumpy, um, but we also saw The Avengers the other day, and that is a fucking shit pile of a movie. The, no, not that Avengers, folks. The other Avengers. The other, other Avengers. 1998's Rafe Fiennes and Uma Thurman film based on the John Steed and Emma Peel show from the British 60s. It's terrible. It is terrible to watch. 
and Connery plays the main bad guy in that, and he looked like he was having a fucking miserable time of things. And I thought, is that what started it? He was wearing a bear costume, and he thought, what the fuck am I doing? I'm a dignified actor. I'm above this sort of thing. I'm a trained actor. Reduced to the status of a bum. And he was offered both The Matrix and Lord of the Rings and turned them down. And it feels like with this, he wanted to get in on a franchise or maybe just something about the whole Last Hurrah thing uh, appealed to him. But from the sounds of it, it was a miserable time on set. And i got to say... Everyone involved in this film seems like they were not having a good time. I can't think of a single person who was clearly having the time of his life. No. I say his, because it's almost all men. Mm. There was one other woman, but she got edited out. They turned her into an invisible knife-wielding thug. Mina does kind of seem to be having a good time. There you go, then. She's She's, extraordinary. Surrounded by blokes, maybe. Yay, I'm participating! Creepy and... They are. All trying to shake her. Yeah. Nemo's probably the least creepy and she doesn't spend a lot of time around Mm. him. We'll talk about her in a second, but yeah, she seems relatively in control of the situation. But yeah, everybody in this is is dour. And um, for some reason it plays in quite well with uh, uh, Quarterman because uh, he's out of his uh, element and challenged, I suppose is the best way of putting it. There's a neat bit where uh, the uh, assassin who's trying to kill him runs off into the cane fields and uh, Connery gets his rifle and uh, then has to put his glasses on to show how old he is. And these glasses are like part of his personality. They, they feature three or four times in the movie. And it's, it's really kind of, I can't, I can't read it. I haven't got my glasses, which is in The Rock. But that's, that's kind of a way of acknowledging that a person is old. And it's a dignified way of doing that. I would, I would hope for the day when Tom Cruise goes, I need my reading glasses, in a movie. But he's the opposite. He's always the, no, I'm going to be forever young. But yeah, so he puts on his glasses and then snipes this guy with, you know, like a boss. Then cut straight to England and they go, we got here very, very quickly. And that's when, like, the first of the real name check starts coming in. It's one of the worst. Could have been quicker. Could have been Phileas Fogg. Dot, dot, dot. Wait. Wait for people to start nudging each other in the audience because they've heard of Phileas Fogg. And then let's tell everyone in the cheap seats. Around the world in 80 days. Audience groans audibly. And it starts with that. He said they go both ways. <laughs> like a bisexual. Thank you, Ted. That was the joke. So then he goes into uh, the like the MI6-looking uh, building and meets Richard Roxborough as M. Roxborough was also in Van Helsing, released around about the same time. He was uh, Dracula, who did this just ridiculous, overblown, shouty version of Dracula. And he was like, I am cursed to wander this castle. And it's just like, whoa, Jesus. Cool it down. So, yeah, he's not very slick. Um, 
Azem, he's a little more slick, but uh, he, he's, he's quite ratty. And it's it's like I, whenever I look at Roxborough, I just think I don't like this ending from uh, Moulin Rouge, which is also like this period, like 2003-ish, was the year of Roxborough because he was in that and Moulin Rouge and Van Helsing. And I've hardly seen him in anything since. So it was just these three films, and then it was like, right, you've had enough for you. And I never thought I would see the day that I would say, actually, his performance as the Duke was rather understated and subtle. She's so fine, and she's mine. Makes me strong. Yes, she makes me bold. And her love thought on. Yes, her love thought on. What was scared and cold. But yeah, he does a lot of shouting in this as well. He's no Nick Fury, is he? No, no, he's not. Captain Nemo comes in, and this is yeah, it, it's it's very much the like like let's get the band together really fucking quickly. Like here's Captain Nemo, and then oh, his little the Invisible Man turns up. What's his name? Rodney? Rodney Skinner. Rodney Skinner. Rodney Skinner. I stole the... I'm doing what We Hate Movies did. I stole the formula I did. I'm kind of like the Scott Lang of, of Invisible Men. And I thought, you know what? Johnny Depp, not content with shafting Stephen Norrington and Commodore Norrington, is going to go, now that is an Invisible Man that I can do. And he'll pinch this version of the Invisible Man for his Invisible Man, which will be coming on the 12th of Never, courtesy of Universal Studios <laughs> and their dark, dark universe. As far as I can tell, the reason that this Invisible Man is Rodney Skinner and not the original Invisible Man is because of a legal dispute with Universal. Who could possibly give a shit? You ask the average school kid, who's Jack Griffin? They'll go... Dunno. And you go, ah, it was the Invisible Man. And they'll say, who? To me, this it felt like they made the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because the technology existed to do an Invisible Man with green screen. As in, like, they just paint a guy with green paint and then he can hollow man his, himself around the place. And they go, wow, that's a great effect. They built the whole of the Hollow Man movie around that stupid effect. And the whole movie is horrible. Because there's not, it's not a good enough reason to make a movie. We can do this. That's how you end up with Lawnmower Man. Yeah. An American Werewolf in Paris is another really good example of this. Sometime around the late 90s they figured out, oh, we could probably do werewolves with CGI. Can you do werewolves with CGI? Well, we'll never know unless we have a film to try to make them with. Let's basically do the same story as American Werewolf in London with a couple of little twists. We'll just sort of throw this thing together and we'll use CGI to, for the werewolf transformations and the werewolves. And it looked like shit. And it's a film history has forgotten. That's what happens when you try to put something together based entirely around one effect. I'm trying to think of a 3D movie that consists entirely of pokey things, pokey things coming yeah. at you from the screen. I think probably the first handful of movies that were out in Technicolor weren't just colour. They were like, we're going to blind you with colour. <laughs> uh, Red Dragon. They were like, we can do this. We can do Manhunter again, but this time with Anthony Hopkins. Does Anthony Hopkins count as an effect? He's an effect. <laughs> they pasted him over. I thought over. you were talking about the eating the brain thing. No, that's Hannibal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course it is. Clock Stoppers. We can freeze everything. Remember that film? You don't remember that film. Thank you for making my point quite succinctly. 
they get the Invisible Man in here, and like, bear in mind, he's naked most of the time. <laughs> he's got his cock and balls out <laughs> all over the place. He's walking around like touching people, and like they get very irritated with him, as you would. But there's a point when he's walking around in the snow later on, and it's like, and you've got hypothermia. It doesn't make any sense. And because he's an effect first and doesn't have any actual personality, he's kind of pointless in this movie. He's just there to be the effect. He didn't need to be in it at all. They could have focused on more of them otherwise. Then Mina Harker turns up, the daywalker. She is a super vampire. She has all of their strengths, none of their weaknesses. The only weakness she has is a craving for blood if it's right there. Well, and seemingly a weakness for Dorian Gray. I, That's I, a very specific weakness. It is a very specific. It's also a very inexplicable weakness. But yeah, he's a complete cockhead. Um, but um, I'm, I'm sh- I could be remembering this completely wrong. I could be, I could be thinking of Anno Dracula. But is, is it in the book that Mina is really strong because she was made by Dracula? For the Alan Moore book? Mm. I don't know. Much as I like a lot of the setting and ideas of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen book, I found it difficult to read, and I've never particularly liked Alan Moore. I do respect him as a writer, but his work has never appealed to me. So there's a point where Mina actually uh, bites some guy, and she gets her face covered in blood, and she is like, oh, I mean, she is orgasming over this blood. And then she checks her face, footumph, in her pocket compact. Oh, so you got a reflection still then? Again, none of the weaknesses. She can fly around as a swarm of carnivorous bats. At that point, actually, do you know what they could have done? What? They could have reused that invisible man with yes, white they paint could. on his face. And she's just like, right, well, I just effect. need to get rid of the blood. Yep, and, and the mirror shows the blood, but not her. Yeah, it's possible that they thought that that would confuse people. That's the level of trust they had in their audience. Maybe it would have been easier if Quartermain had said, Ah, I can see you have no reflection, like a vampire. However, terrifyingly, Rodney drinks some whiskey and it goes into his belly and you can see it going down his throat. And it's like, if he ate a sandwich, ugh. Basically, how long would it stay visible and at what point would I no longer want to look at Rodney anymore? Basically, the, the whiskey seems to kind of evaporate when it hits his solar plexus. Uh-huh. It doesn't go into his stomach. You only see it go down his throat. Right. Is that just a stupid effect and they hadn't thought about it? Yes. Yes. Of course it is. <laughs> see also the whole movie. Yes. So Mina turns up, and, and like I said, she's quite self-possessed, and she's quite um, she, she's got sort of a mysteriousness about her, but she stands her ground, and she's quite good at verbally sparring with guys, and she's probably like maybe the second best thing in this, with Connery being the first, simply because he's got presence. Now, they gave Connery $17 million to be in this, and this is one of those classic, you fucked up moments. They gave him, they were so intent on getting Connery that the, he's surrounded by nobody in particular. So, it's not a league at all. That's not how leagues work. It's Sean Connery and sidekicks. Although, that does make it sound like this was Connery's last big score. (laughs) Yeah, Sean Connery's last big score. Collect the paycheck and then exit stage left. Honestly, it feels like The Rock should have been his last film. Don't you think? 
1996. He didn't do much of anything that was all that important after The Rock. Yeah, he did The Avengers. Could have skipped that one. Could have skipped that one. Playing by heart, no one's ever spoken about. Entrapment, that's just leering after Ch- Catherine Zeta-Jones' ass. Finding Forrester, it's a drama. No one ever talks about it. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. This one fucks everything up. Sir Billy is a 2012 British computer animated adventure comedy feature film. It was made by a husband and wife, Sasha Hartman and Tessa Hartman, directed by Sasha Hartman. The film stars the voices of Sean Connery, Alan Cumming, Patrick Doyle and Kieran Elliott. Now, when we say animated, we mean like food fight level animation. It's, a, it's Scotland's first CGI animated feature. Uh, how did he get Sean Connery? Right. Considering how, like, pro... Scotland yeah. Connery is I would imagine there was an element of wanting to lend his star power to something homegrown the negative reaction to the film was widely reported in the British press Variety called it woefully anemic criticising its simplistic story and non-sequitur style they pointed out a few in-jokes referencing Connery's past role as James Bond such as a title sequence featuring a Shirley Bassey song of pastiche's Bond themes the Scotsman called it mirthless and rudimentary Slash Film criticised it as an ignominious end to Connery's career even compared to his previous film the critically reviled League of Extraordinary Gentlemen Flay were called the CG the ugliest that I have ever seen. Journalist Lisa Summers was so harshly critical of both the CG and the story. F-bomb movie review felt felt it badly failed to connect with today's children. Despite its negative uh, re- reception, AMFM magazine claimed it was well received in its premiere in Sonoma. So its budget was $15 million. Could you not just have given $15 million to children's hospitals? It's 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. I want to say get him back into a last role in Indiana Jones. They've all like George Lucas has already said, "Yep, well he's dead now." But uh, they could have a flashback, maybe, like a flashback with Indy in when he's slightly younger than he was in Crystal Skull when his dad was still around. Come on! Oh God, what a waste of this man! This man, because you know, we gave him a, a roasting for. Um, Zardoz and his personal politics, especially towards women, leave a lot to be desired, which, especially for me, is really hard to divorce myself from while watching him. But the guy's got presence and he's part of cinema heritage and he can pull off some really good performances. And there's, you know, with Highlander, it's another one of the five. Ah, yes, of course. And Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, yep. that's number one. And Dragonheart. And the name of the rose. That's all five. That's a really sterling actor. You know, he's been in a bunch of other rubbish like Darby O'Gill and the Little People, uh, and Never Say Never Again. But every old warrior deserves a final shot at going out in style, which is why, for me, The Rock is his true farewell. But yeah, back to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, Captain Nemo comes out, and he's played by Nasruddin Shah as Captain Nemo. The great Nasruddin. And uh, again, he's uh, probably uh, one of the better things in this because he doesn't say much. He's not overblown. He's um, quiet and he appears to worship Kali or Shiva. Uh, Kali it is. He does have a measure of dignity that every single other person in this film completely fails to attain. Richard Roxburgh needs to look at that guy and see what he was doing differently. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also, if that really is him doing the uh, stunts during the fights, that guy can move. 
He's he can really kick the crap out of what people. What else has he been in? It looks like he's big in Bollywood pictures. And uh, so, yeah, he turns up with this supercar, like this big, white-ass Batmobile, and says, I call it an automobile. And it's like, you couldn't have called it something more than that? Like, you call the Nautilus the Nautilus. I call it the Nautomobile. That's a better... <laughs> Come on! That took me two seconds, y'all! Come on! So, yeah, they take the Nautomobile uh, back to... Which was sold on eBay, by the way. Um, probably for an extremely high price. Uh, back to the Nautilus. And uh, the, the guy driving the car, they go, What's your name, sir? And he goes, Whoop! <sighs> Cracks his knuckles. Call me Ishmael. They pause for a second. Then he turns around to the camera and goes, Remember? That was like the first line in Moby Dick. He doesn't actually say that, but it's no. very, like, kind but of... If he might as well. They needed a hi-hat every time somebody made a reference like that. Alan Quartermain, may I introduce Mina Harker? Ah, oh, she, you're a lady of the night. When they're driving in the car, Mina and, and Quartermain are, are getting angry at each other because um, uh, what Quarterman's point on this is, no women, they're just trouble. Plus, I always get involved with them, inevitably, and then they die, so why bother having any contact with womankind whatsoever? Well, I don't know, maybe you might not bone this one and she might not die. Nope, not taking that risk. <laughs> Doesn't sound like Connery at all. It's, but it's baffling the way that line's delivered. It's so awful. It, it comes off as though, it's almost as though the intention is that you know he's being a dick at this point. I think his, his actual line is that women are at best a distraction. Um, which is a, a wonderful sentiment, isn't it? That's that's really an excuse not to have any women around. Not that it's an excuse not to have any men around because they're so easily distracted. Um, but the way Mina kind of looks at him, it's it, because it's being delivered by Sean Connery and mm. it's done in quite a kind of James Bond Dickish done way. here to run the show kind of way. It's like, is it, are we actually meant to be agreeing with him a little bit here? And you should only use the back of your hand when you hit them. Particularly considering that even at this point we already know Mina is the toughest out of all of them. Yep. And is going to prove to be the most useful. Oh, she could take that whole team apart. Yeah. Even Mr. Hyde. So, um, yeah. It's a, and she turns to him and says, you're a little testy, Mr. Quartermain. And he doesn't go, no, that's just Rodney. I call him little Rodney. Um, you have to, really. Yeah, if he's walking around with cold? it out all the time, it's going to be so cold. <laughs> I've done that sumo thing. Anyway, so then they go and call upon the house of Dorian Gray. Oh, God. And We Hate Movies made this point. And Andrew got really angry. He was just, stupid movie. They point out that Dorian Gray's missing a picture on his wall. There's this great big blank space. This and is he's my like, fourth arg. Arg. And they put, like, and, and as stupid pointed up, he wouldn't just have that particular enchanted portrait of him on the wall surrounded by other pictures. It would have, at best, like, pride of place on one wall and then he would have replaced it with something else. No, no, no. It's not. And he says why not. He can't look at it. If he looks at it, he will become the picture again or the picture will become him and then he will die. I've actually read it and I don't remember a damn thing about it. It doesn't matter. It's symbolic. Like, the the specific, the law of it, the Transformers law, is not important. It's not. If you thrust the character uncomfortably into a sci-fi context, suddenly the mechanics of 
who he is become important, but in only a very superficial way. And that's why it doesn't work. But he wouldn't just keep it on the wall with other stuff, is the thing. No, he definitely wouldn't just keep it on the wall with other stuff. But it's done in such an overt way. Like, wouldn't it have been better for there to have been a landscape picture on the wall? And then they, uh, um, Mina had just walked over and looked at the very top and very bottom and seen that there was the outline of a picture that previously was there, and it was a portrait. And now he's got a picture of lesbians rolling around all over the floor. Yeah, it seems like his M.O., actually. <laughs> or, actually, knowing Dorian Gray, he'd just, it'd be a picture of a girl leaning on a motorbike... And he'd go, oh, I'd, oh, I'd like, like to, to kiss, kiss her. her. Do you know what? This did have me thinking briefly. I really wish Fifty Shades of Grey had been a fanfic version of this. Do you think that Stuart Townsend could have played Christian Grey? Oh, no. No? No. no? I just mean the characters. I, 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 I could not locate the fucks that I give about that series. Mm. Uh, it's not for us, obviously. I Though it is genuinely harmful regarding BDSM practices and could possibly lead to some really harmful relationships from girls who take it too literally. But, um, moving on. Moving slowly on. Uh, Dorian Gray is a dickish piece of dick and, uh, like, smirks at them and sneers at them and, and is like, oh, you've come around to ask for me, have you? Stuart Townsend. How? Genuinely baffles me, and and by which I mean Stuart Townsend's career genuinely baffles me. By which I mean that he has one. Honestly, I really liked him as Jez in Shooting Fish. He's really nice in that. And you then th- it all went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was in um, I want to say Resurrection Man, uh, where he played a really like scary Dan the Dagger Man from Dagenham type criminal. Like he'll cut you. And then that's probably how he got uh, Lord of the Rings, and then... It's, I'm, I'm probably being rather unfair, because I do hold him personally responsible for buggering up Queen of the Damned, and it wasn't his fault. He didn't write... Everything anything. was wrong with that film. Yes, yes, it Everything. Was. He was in Resurrection Man, loosely based on the real-life Shankill Butchers, an Ulster loyalist gang in 1970s Belfast, who conducted random killings of Catholic civilians under their leader, Lenny Murphy, who was assassinated by a provisional IRA hit squad. Sounds like a fucking barrel of laughs. Oh, he was in Wonderland. Yeah, no, I think he was quite good in Wonderland, as I recall. The uh, Michael Winterbottom film. Then Queen of the Damned in 2002. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in 2003. Aeon Flux in 2005. Haven't seen that one. Most recently, A Stranger in Paradise. So anyway, he's rubbish in this. Just this smirking twat that you can't... Like, he's so obviously a villain. Yes. Yes, he is. In fact, when I was matching the characters up with their Avengers counterparts, um, I put him down as Loki. Yeah, poor man's Loki. Mm. Absolutely destitute man's Loki. He's just set up as this sex... God? God. Really? Appealing... Lotharia. He's really hot. He has Dom jeans. But he's not! He just... He isn't! He's... Subjective? Okay, part of what bothers me is I, I do have a type. And he is the type that I would normally go for in a big way. Like that skinny, pale, slightly goth chap with longish, dark hair. He's like a not-funny Noel Fielding. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> That, that type used to be the, really the type that I went for. Used to be. But 
think it's just the fact that Mina's knees buckle for him so quickly. Mm. Like, instantly. Yeah, anyway, so he's charmless and smug, and uh, they go to the Nautilus, and they jump on, and... Oh, they go to Paris to get Mr. Hyde, and it's like, dude, this is the third Mr. Hyde I've seen this month! Second one in Paris! Van Helsing begins with this Shrek-like Mr. Hyde, and also Russell Crowe plays him in The Mummy, so... I was just trying to compare them in my head because Russell Crowe is obviously just Russell Crowe with a bit of makeup. The Shrek one in Van Helsing was this disgusting CGI voiced by Robbie Coltrane. And this one is um, Jason Fleming in ridiculous prosthetic arms and a giant hunchback and a massive top hat. And I thought, which is the best? Um... Which is the worst? Then I can at least eliminate one. I actually... They're all so bad. They are, but I do quite like um, Fleming's Hyde, if only because the one in Van Helsing was... Well, there's no complexity to the one in yeah, Van Helsing absolutely. at all. He's, he's just a, a mindless monster. Hmm. And um, Fleming plays him a bit more Grey Hulk. Yeah, He's articulate, um, he's smart, he's cunning, he works things out, but then he'll also turn around and squash you. Yeah. Of the three of them, um, Fleming's uh, Hyde probably gets the most to do with... Like, Fleming's Hyde and Jekyll gets the most to do with uh, on screen. Mm. Uh, I mean, really, it's practically a cameo in The Mummy. Like, you know, Russell Crowe turns up, delivers a lot of exposition, whereby he may as well not be Dr. Jekyll at all. Yeah. Aside from the whole, I want to destroy evil and just, you know, that thing that he does there. That, that, that I can understand how that might stem from a Dr. Jekyll. Can we yes. explore that? Nope. I was just about to say, yes, that would be quite interesting. The idea that the evil in himself makes him want to eradicate it everywhere else he sees it. Notably, there's no Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde movie on the slate at all. And they threw a hunchback of Notre Dame in there, for God's sake. Okay, that that universe ain't happening at all. Mm. So, yeah, I think he's... But, but yeah, the, the interplay between... Uh, Jekyll and Hyde is yeah. it, it is a significant part of the plot, and it is um, he is one of the MacGuffins, as it were, that's part of of how this um, story is meant to be unfolding. Yeah. Um, in terms of which looks best, um, they all look like dog shit. I mean, probably like Russell Crowe's looks the least bad, but he just looks like an angry Russell Crowe with a bit of fat face makeup on. So it's. Not really. And that was his last three roles. Like, I was expecting a Hulk at that point, and I got Russell Crowe. And I was like, well, I suppose that's quite dangerous. And then he throws Tom Cruise around, and it's like, that's not dangerous. Right, moving on. I saw a really good video recently. It was a reason why action movies have started to suck uh, by hyperdrive. Um, but the specific reason is because Terminators now st like pick up humans and throw them around the room. They have every opportunity to just put their fist through the hero's face. But they want to throw them around, what, to weaken them? And it's not just Terminators. Big things throw heroes around all the time. And it's, that has got no power anymore. Because we know that all it is doing is delaying the actual point where the hero uses a thing to get away. Whereas the original Terminator never even got to touch Sarah Connor until the very, very end, and then she was like an inch away from death, and it, she had practically reduced it to its component parts at that stage, but it was still dangerous. 
That gave power to the Terminator. So yeah, that was a good video. So now we're on the Nautilus, and this is the the good bit of the film for me. Like, this is where all the characters get locked in this bottle of a, um, a helicarrier and have nothing to do but talk to each other about who they are. And they talk less about the mission and where they're going and more about themselves. Mm. And I'm like, thank God. Thank fucking God. Just, like, draw the characters out. Could we have more of this, please, instead of yeah. all of, like... It then cuts to Venice for some action stuff later, and it's like, no, don't go to Venice! We were enjoying that. Uh... This is the stuff that people say is boring in the Avengers. You people baffle me. This is the stuff that I like. You know, the, the characters actually clashing with each other and being drawn out and interplay and, you know, see how this one works with this one, see how this one works with this one. That's good stuff. You get a little bit of their philosophies as well. There's a, a great line from Nemo where he says, I try to live in the now where the ghosts of old Rons do not abide, which I thought was really nice. It's a great line. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, at this point I was basically trying to, um, to to parallel them with the Avengers, so I got, obviously, Jekyll and Hyde of Banner, Banner. and Hulk. Yeah. Um, Harker is Romanov. Grey is Loki, and um, I was trying to work out where I'd place Quartermain, um, and he's he's cat. kind of cat. Yeah. yeah, he's old, older than all of these other heroes here, out of his element, but being expected to lead them. Yeah, and I suppose Rodney is a really shitty Stark, who has no real influence on the team. Yeah. Is everything a joke to you? Funny story. Yeah, they're in a, an advisory capacity. But they even do, um, like, the bit where they put on the, the record of M yep. and his monologuing. Yep. And then you get that high-pitched... Yep. Well, that, that is very... That high-pitched like bit, it's in... The spear. It's, the spear does that to Banner, yeah. yeah. Oh, we also haven't mentioned the other guy. Um, Shane West is in there as Tom Sawyer. He's turned up for the Americans. and Because uh, it's like, Americans won't get all these British-related uh, heroes. So here's Tom Sawyer, which was a good move, I think. And, you know, ultimately, th there was supposed to be a subtext about that the Phantom had killed Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> I don't know why that's... It's, it's so... Pointless? It's like, and then I killed Eeyore. <laughs> it's absurd. I can understand my friend Huckleberry Finn died in my arms when we were trying to get the Phantom. I can understand that. But the Phantom killed Huckleberry Finn. It's like it's just one too far into the we we've smushed these universes together and they don't necessarily fit. Mm. You know? Yes. <laughs> and then I killed Eeyore. And then I ate Piglet. And also, like, it's a huge, huge missed opportunity not having Sherlock in here. What the fuck, guys? Like, they're, they're obviously their nod to Sherlock comes in later, if you've seen the film, obviously. But, like, that would have been a perfect compliment to the team. There's your Stark I was just right about there. To say. There's your wild card. You've then got someone really smart on the team. I suspect that if Sherlock had been on the team, he'd have worked out what the plot was within minutes with deductive reasoning. Everyone else would have looked like a complete clod. But for that, on scripting duties, you need somebody really good at crafting mysteries. Oh, you know what? If, if I was... Yeah, number one, numero uno. 
If you're doing LXG again, because there's talk of this being revitalized. Ditch the Invisible Man, bring in Sherlock Holmes. Make the Invisible Man a villain, basically. Yeah, keep the Invisible Man in, in villainous capacity and, and make him just someone that you're scared of and it like, might be around the place. Ditch the Invisible Man anyway, because fucking the Dark Universe might be doing that, but like maybe keep him back. Basically, someone being invisible and a hero isn't interesting. Mm. Someone being invisible and a villain might be tense. You know? Mm-hmm. Invisible and a hero, un- unless they're a kid. An invisible kid is funny. An invisible hero is creepy. Anything? Two point. I'm invisible boy! I have to be naked to do this. But that's the thing. Like, if they have to be naked... You can't change the fact that this guy's running around with his cock and balls out. You know? That's there all the time. And they're incredibly vulnerable as a result. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to go in and rescue people from burning buildings when you've got no protective gear on whatsoever. No one ever thought, well, I've got it, like, I'm, you know, I'm I'm dealing with an invisible assailant here. I will cover the floor. She's Den Fenster. You know, because this person's got to have bare feet. Otherwise, they wouldn't be invisible. You'd see two shoes running at you. Or you go to the other extreme. You have an invisible hero whose invisibility is completely irrelevant the whole way through. What a brilliant character. Well, exactly. It becomes pointless. Yeah. But yeah, you you want a Sherlock in this. My God, did this need a Sherlock. Mm. Who could have played Sherlock in 2003? British man, obviously Robert Downey Jr. was in a seriously um, you know, bad, place. bad place, so obviously not him. Cumberbatch was just on the ascendance. Maybe an older Sherlock, though. Doesn't necessarily have to be young and sexy. Mm. Ooh, Charles Dance. Yeah, although he'd also be a really good Moriarty. Mm. Yeah, that's true. He could play both. Yeah, I would rather Charles Dance than uh, Roxborough. No, actually, I wouldn't want to make Sherlock too old, because if he's too old, he's going to be Quartermain's age as well. Mm. I was going to say Pete Postlethwaite. He would have been good. Mm. We'll never know now. Oh, Patrick Stewart. Oh, Patrick Stewart. Imagine that, Connery, Stewart. That'd be a great little fighting one another to see who was... uh... Actually, for that matter, since he's already played him in uh, old Sherlock, uh, Ian McKellen. yes. Also works. I think Ian McKellen was busy. He was doing this other little film at the time, I think. Oh, yeah, Return of the King. Anyway, they go to Venice. Uh, what do you think of the costumes and sets, by the way? Because I have put this down as a possible like talking point. I think they did a good job. I think it would have been better if they'd had a more consistent idea of what they wanted it to look like. The, the, the actual quality of the costumes is pretty good, but the design is somewhat all over the place I, di- I really liked Nemo's outfit yeah. I love the sets in the Nautilus That basically that whole thing surrounding Nemo and the Nautilus yeah. is, is probably my favourite bit um, in terms of scripting and, and what's actually going on and how it looks while it's doing it I liked Connery's Quartermain outfit the, uh, the leather um, van braces mm. were quite good under the shirt yeah um, but well, like the way I said, he had his hair. The fact that they had the bad guys looking really semi-modern Nazi-ish yeah. stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, I quite liked Mina's outfit. I love that red scarf. 
Everyone keeps trying to score with Mina as well. Tom Sawyer's like sort of, hey, how's it going? You're a vampire. You want to suck this? He doesn't say that. Like, he's trying to score with her and she's like, oh, you're sweet. And what was the other thing? You're sweet and young. Neither quality I hold in high regard. All right. <laughs> Can't do much about the whole young thing. I guess I could do something about the sweet thing. But, you know, it, it's fair enough. She gives him a, 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 it's a... It's a decent enough brush off to make it pretty clear to him. And um, he's not that fantastic a character. But when he um, bonds with Quarterman on the uh, the deck of the Nautilus, when they're just skeet shooting, and uh, Quarterman instructs him in how to shoot, from the sounds of it, he's pretty he's a pretty good shot as it is. But the, the whole... You've got... You have all the time in the world... That's a weird kind of bit of feedback because he's talking, you know, obviously he's talking about um, people that he cares about who have gone and he's talking about his son being uh, uh, dead. He mentions it several times and We Have All the Time in the World was the piece of music that played at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service after Bond's wife had been killed and Bond literally said, we have all the time in the world. But that was the guy who replaced Connery. It almost seems like they were confused and went, you said that, didn't you, Sean? And he was like, no, actually, that was the other guy. But I'll say it anyway, because, you know, people will associate it with Bond. But just the way he delivers those lines and just the, the reservation he has, um, I found quite touching. So then they go to Venice and there's this horrible, horrible, horrible CG. Uh, it's, it, it's sort of this, everyone's outside in Venice having this open air festival with the lights off. And then some bombs go off and immediately they're racing in their Batmobile down uh, this endless alleyway while houses collapse around them. And it's like, well, thank God nobody's in these houses or this would be a massacre. And then they, you know, jump over the Batmobile over the thing and then uh, Dorian Gray smugs smugly at them from the escape craft and smugs off. And then they go, oh, what are we going to do now? And they get back in the Nautilus, drive after him. There's this ridiculous tracking device map thing, which is like sort of, here's the Earth, here's you, and here's the Nautiloid. And it's like, well, how very specific. Um, and what would have happened had the Nautiloid been... Too far away from the Nautilus. Well, just you wouldn't be able to track it, I suppose. Because it wouldn't fit into this great big silly map. And he's stolen a bunch of stuff. And how could you possibly have trusted this guy? It's it's such a, like, everybody smacking their heads, foreheads at the end of Naked Gun 33 and a third all at once. Like, you bought this on yourselves. And then they play this smug, expositionary video where it turns out that the phantom was M but Connery's already found that one out and then Dorian sort of in league with him and they're sort of smirking around the place and then they play this tone to set off the bombs on the Nautilus and it's like why don't you just have timed bombs how did you know that they were definitely going to play this record and not go can you hear that weird sound like, just have timed bombs. It's the same thing. They even had that exact same timed bomb earlier when they were in Africa. Mm, yeah. Also, it doesn't take into account any number of preemptive solutions like Mina's a vampire and may have high-pitched hearing and might instantly go, there's something weird going on there, turn it off. Jekyll might do exactly the same thing. They all heard it. Yeah. And they're like, eh, 
Yeah, what's that? Turn Sorry. the damn thing off. I can't, I can't hear what he's saying. Sorry, speak up a little bit, Em. But the actual car chase through Venice um, and Mina turns into a vampire bat storm, kind of, it's like a level in a video game. It's like, now you got to do the driving level. I said exactly the same thing in our To The Moon episode, but this is literally a driving section. But it's a video game where the most, the bulk of the game is not driving. So they've just thrown this car section in for no real reason. They haven't really had time to work out the mechanics. And all you're really doing is propelling a shiny white dick with two seats through a city of parallel skyscrapers that are very, very poorly rendered. But they're hoping you won't notice because you're going past them so quickly. It's rubbish. And I hate big action sequences like this because they don't achieve anything. And Dr. Jekyll uh, was earlier um, wrestling with his inner demon of Mr. Hyde. He was sort of watching Dorian explaining his power, but not himself, to Mina. And he's like, oh, you know, if you turn into Mr. Hyde, she'd notice you. And it's like, are you sure? Because she, you probably don't want her to notice you for that reason. I was going to say, would notice because can't get past in narrow tunnel. Yeah, would notice because big hat. I've got a hat. Would notice because arms like tree trunks that drag along the ground. <laughs> but so, yeah, the, the ship gets scuppered and they, everyone's um, like drowning below decks. And Dr. Jekyll takes his potion on purpose, goes below the decks to help. And very specifically, just within reach of him having, having a short swim and turning into Mr. Hyde are two big crank handles that can only be pulled by someone of the size of Mr. Hyde. <laughs> And it's like, it's so good that he was able to help them in this very, very specific way. Which begs the question, how do they turn them normally? But, I mean, I like the idea that like, it's kind of the parallel of Hulk going apeshit in uh, Avengers and yeah. wrecking the helicarrier, only this particular Mr. Hyde's trying to help. Mm. So he's aiming him. Yes. Yeah. Well, he does, he takes out the... Um the little jet, doesn't he? Yeah. So as crap as all this is, I'm still kind of enjoying this film. There is never a point when I'm like, I hate this film, it's rubbish. It's always just, oh, this film's stupid. Like, when I first saw it, I did hate this film. But just over the years, it's um, it's kind of become this affable loser. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, it's not as, like, it's not objectionable. I object to the fact that it was uh, Connery's penultimate film. But I object a lot more to Mr. Billy. Far prefer this to the um, uh, John Steed Avengers film. Mm. If that had been his last film, I'd have been like, what a terrible end. At least this is about an old hunter calling it a day, you know? Yeah. It's thematically in keeping with retirement. When Mr. Hyde's underwater, by the way, I'm like, well, he still needs to breathe, right? Yeah, as far as I know. But he knows the ship very intimately, uh, and yet he's, he's able to save the day. Um, so then they travel by map. Remember that bit in the Muppets where they go, we got to travel by map, it's the quickest way. <laughs> and then they travel Indiana Jones style across the globe with the red line. That's, yeah, fair enough. Then they end up in the Arctic. Is the Arctic or the Antarctic? Because they're tracking Rodney in the uh, Nautiloid. Now they've gotten to like M's enemy base, and M has already got six Nautiluses, Nautili. And a whole, like, crew of vampire assassins who are probably invisible, who we haven't, like, we don't get to see them, but he's like, he's all ready to go. And um, a bunch of stuff that he's stolen from them. And it's like, if he's already got six Nautiluses, what did he need from the Nautilus? That doesn't make any sense. And uh, he's also got a bunch of Mr. Hyde guards, and they had to 
Like, uh, yeah, that's it. They take Mina's blood, and it's like, it's 1899. What could you really do with blood in those days? They don't have the ability to synthesize blood in the same way. It's that special blood bullshit, isn't it? I've just extracted your juice, Wolverine style. And now, once I've got your juice, I can do whatever I want with it. Mm. I can understand we've extracted this much blood from Mina, and not just a little dab on a hanky, but like a vial of it, and we could inject this directly into a dude and have our own one vampire. That I can understand. But like, a dab of it on a hanky? What are you doing with that? So they're in the uh, Arctic and they're hiding in a cave for no reason and uh, Quarterman sees an old tiger approach, like his spirit animal. And it's uh, this is a bit that I remember We Hate Movies hated, but I really like this bit because I love tigers and the idea of a spirit animal and the idea that this is uh, Quarterman's and he's sensing the end at this stage. And I suppose it's kind of a prepare thyself moment. And then Captain Nemo turns up and ruins it and goes, ah, Seems like an old tiger is sensing the end. And it's like, yeah, we kind of got that. Fair enough. Um, so Rodney turns up and, and grabs Mina's ass, And he's little, he's invisible. And like I said before, he'd get hypothermia in a minute. His little cock and balls would now be concave. They would have retreated up inside him. Frozen off and dropped off. Oh, my little balls have just frozen off the lot. A couple of little frozen chicken nuggets. I made myself an invisible eunuch. And as I said, yeah, if it doesn't drop off, his invisible tadger is out for everybody to smell. <laughs> and then, again, We Hate Movies mentioned that as well. So I was like, oh, I was going to say that. But it's true. But someone's got their dick out. I'm not. Pulling a face at the fact that you said it. I'm pulling a face at the concept. And Rodney doesn't seem like the kind of guy who keeps himself very well groomed, you know? Well, his attitude would be, I don't have to. How many spray in- stray invisible pubes got into the food oh. on the Nautilus? Oh. And, uh, he, oh, yeah, Rodney also says, any more like me and I'll lose the franchise. And it's like, n- no, you're the progenitor of this franchise. Honey, you're the you franchise holder. <laughs> And also, yeah, uh, you'll lose the franchise. That might be a reference to the fact that they couldn't use the name of the original Invisible Man because right. it was copyrighted, uh, possibly to Universal. Okay. So he had to be this gentleman thief version of the Invisible Man. And then they have fun storming the castle. They go to the enemy's wicked base. And um, uh, turns out that the Phantom, who was also Richard Roxborough, who was also M, is Moriarty! From Sherlock Holmes, pick a villain at this point. I th- yeah, I'm. I think like this. That was a, a big reveal in the book, but the way it happens in the film, it's like honestly, Sherlock has kind of like at that point in 2003, Sherlock had faded enough from people's memory for it to not really feel relevant anymore. If League was made now and the reveal was M is Moriarty, that's a big reveal. Everyone would go, "Oh shit, Moriarty!" But back in 2003. Less so, I suspect. Hmm. Obviously, literary fans would go, oh, that's clever. M. Moriarty, mm, hiding in plain sight. Um, but like his voice changes. He's like, he, no, no, Moriarty died at the Reichenbach Fall, and I was born. He's a villain who is villainous for the sake of being villainous. Mm. Also, This is, again, why they don't make movies like this anymore is a good thing. And everyone going on and on about Marvel movies having bad villains, go back a bit. 
just go back a bit. Most villains are shit. It's just that the heroes in Marvel movies are so great and are given so much time that, by contrast, the villains, by and large, are nowhere near as worked on. Mm. Uh, Here's the point where I actually got really confused, because Rodney's disappeared... (laughs) <laughs> at this point. Well, of course he has. He's the invisible man. Uh, yes, but he's also not speaking, which means he's not around. Um, and there's kind of a... Uh, there's a point where everybody thinks he's the traitor, mm-hmm. like before they figure out that it's grey, even though it's blindingly obviously grey from word one. Yeah, she finds, um, like, powder by the um, ship's wheel, and I just thought, well, that's, like, we had already seen that when... Um, Dorian Gray gets shot, ash comes out of these little bullet holes like powder. So automatically you're associating Dorian Gray with dusty powder. And it turns out later to be flashbulb powder. And it's like, well, that's a different powder, but it's still pointed to the same guy. You're, you're not hiding this well. No. Um, but when um, M starts with the Cockney accent, somehow in my head... You thought he was Rodney? I thought he was Rodney, now visible. They were in the same room together during the earlier bit, when Rodney was smearing cream all over his face. Yeah. You'd forgotten that? No, 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 I hadn't forgotten that, but I I just, I don't know. Something seemed to feel a little bit like, Mm. I don't know. Also, this team lacks a Thor. Yes, Nemo's the closest they've got. No. He's in it the least. He's religiously and philosophically affiliated. But no, there's nobody who's sort of bright and beautiful no. and, and hulking and in muscular. That, in and, that sense, yeah, no, there no. isn't. No. And so Dorian and Mina have a fight with swords. And then he stabs her through the heart and goes, I always thought I'd nail you one more time. And then we all groaned. It's an awful line. It is a terrible line. But it's actually not the worst thing about this fight. The worst thing about this fight is that I couldn't shift my attention from the fact that he has this really long sword Mm -hmm. and at one point I think either right either she sticks a sword through him or he sticks a sword through her it happens first one then the other first one then the other but it's very long and it's it's of a length that you can see that if you push that into somebody's chest up to the hilt that sword's going to be sticking out of their back far out of that but it isn't and I'm just standing there going, this is just two people in a room holding a sword hilt pressed against the other person's chest. That's not a fight. Did they not show the sword blade coming out of his back? Or was that before she pinned him to the wall? Oh, no, this is before she pins him to the wall. Right. Well, she ends the fight by pinning him to the wall and then finding that picture that we've already had set up earlier and showing him the picture of Dorian Gray. And we get what would have been and could have been a really great Indiana Jones ending for this guy where he goes, Oh no! And then turns into a freaking like decaying corpse before our eyes. Or even better, if he's a painting, just like really go at that. Like rip him away in pieces of canvas whilst water drips down, smearing his features together and fire licks at the edges. Make his fate the worst thing that can happen to a painting. Make that stick in our minds. Give us nightmares. There's two ways you could do this in 2003. You can use the best of prosthetics and make it look fucking disgusting. Or you can use the worst of CGI and make it look a different kind of fucking disgusting. Guess which one they did, Well, they'd already spent 
17 million on Sean Connery. So. <sighs> Sorry, Sean, you used up all the prosthetics money. <laughs> this is what bothers me. Like, at the early 2000s, they were sitting atop decades, you know, a whole century of, of prosthetic makeup. And indeed, centuries before that of theatrical makeup. A hundred years of hard-learned practical effects, themselves stemming from centuries of theatrical practical effects. And rather than beautifully fusing the best of practical with some early CG, like with the way that Jurassic Park does it, where, where they can't do it in any other way, they do CG, rather than blending the two together, they were so desperate to jump forwards into this new millennium and go, look, we've got to do CG. We'll just do this with CG, and we'll do this with CG, and we'll do this with CG, and we'll do this with CG. They were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And... Uh, ultimately, Dorian Gray melting should have been a prosthetic because that would have looked fucking great. You know, when a dude's face melts off and they start with a, a, a brilliant wax cast of uh, Stuart Townsend going, Aah! and then his jaw drops down and then it starts to melt. I mean, we're talking like Raiders of the Lost Ark 20 years before this. And it's classic. And this is not. And there are reasons for that. Obviously, there's many other reasons why... Um, uh, Raiders is classic, but I, I just, I am baffled, baffled continuously when we go back to the turn of the century stuff now and look at how many crappy cheap shortcuts were carried out in aid of getting effects on screen with CG. Now, it has led to good things in that CG has advanced because rather than tentatively approaching CG, they just jumped in full pelt and did loads of CG that didn't work, loads of CG that did work mostly of the former and a lot less of the latter. So, for example, those moments when you've got like a younger version of someone's face, originally in X-Men 3 looked disgusting. Now, you can just sort of get away with it. Like You thought it was a completely different actor playing Jack in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 5. I call that getting away with it, well. And, and climbing the ladder on, on top of that. But unfortunately, the, the, the payoff for that, the, the, the sacrifice, the thing that has to be paid is that a whole bunch of movies for a dozen years looked like ass and looked terrible by today's standards and it just makes me think that so many of these could have been saved had they taken a more measured approach kept the people on who were great with prosthetics decided which looked best in both cases and and uh, and which would keep the audience in the film because that's the important thing if your effect if it's a prosthetic effect that takes the audience out of the film it's too much if it's a cg effect that takes the audience out of the film and they're thinking more about the effect than what's happening it's too much and let's not forget that if you are confident with your effects you don't have to overcompensate wildly and you can make sure that the first thing that gets paid attention to while the effects are being designed the script you make sure that script is a workable story, a solid piece with various characters that people want to see. Not just a collection of scenes to allow the effects that you so desperately want people to pay money to see. The audience at this point wants Christian Grey, well, wants Dorian Grey to suffer horribly for all of the, uh, the nastiness and the smugness feed that schadenfreude don't just go there you go there's an effect oh, that looks terrible and obviously at that point it's not really dorian gray it's just a terrible effect in now 
you know? I was going to say you could just have Mina eat his head, but then that kind of defeats the need for him to be Dorian yeah, Gray at all. Yeah, it had to be that. It has to be the painting. I do wonder, though, why he didn't keep it locked in a, uh, uh, a vault in his old house, mm. like impossible to get to. Like, why would he bring it with him? It just means that, you know, the Phantom would steal it from his room and have leverage anyway. Yeah. Uh, so um, then Dr... Jekyll comes into contact with Red Hulk as this disgusting CGI creature version of Mr. Hyde is just like a henchman who drinks his serum. And oh my god, it's like that giant raspberry monster from the end of Blade. Yes. It's like Stephen Norrington looks at CG like that and goes, yep, that'll do. In which case, I'm sad that he never got to evolve a more critical eye than that or continue his career. Because this, like, being able to get over this hump feels like it it mattered. I feel like if Stephen Summers had directed this film instead of Van Helsing, it would have been way better as well. And possibly just saved Van Helsing for an extra year. So yeah, there's this disgusting Red Hulk and it, like, when they blow it up, it co- that explosion conveniently blows a hole in the wall behind them, even though the explosion came from in front of them, and so it's... I'm like, well, that was convenient. Then they get out and, and get away from the explosion. And um, then Alan Quarterman fights the Phantom to the death, and they're, they're grappling in the room of requirement, it seems. And at this point, um, uh, Tom Sawyer's been fighting with an invisible assassin who's just a knife trying to stab him. And that just reminded me of that bit in um, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, where uh, Sanchez... Is it Sanchez? Comes up against a, uh, an, you know, a telekinetically... Uh, controlled series of um, uh, improvised weapons. And it's like, what is it? Cordless iron. Friggin' smarts as well. Just this this knife trying to attack him. Like I said, that was originally a woman. That was uh, a female character that they literally edited out of the film digitally. Wow. So you know, when women were deemed too silly for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Basically, yeah. When um, the Phantom shows uh, uh, Quarterman in in his shiny mask behind you, um, someone has a knife to the throat of uh, Tom Sawyer. That was originally a woman, like who was visible, but they painted her out of the whole picture. So Quarterman gets stabbed in the back, and Tom Sawyer is the one who actually has to do the shooting. And it harkens back to the whole, you have all the time in the, in the world, um, you know, take your time, son. And it's 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 sad, it's poignant, because this is, these are the last words we're going to hear Connery say. And he even says, you know, may this new century be yours as the old one was mine. And I think that this, some part of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen must have really sunk in uh, and just made me think, I really want to do this better. And at the end, there's kind of a sequel bait, you know, Africa won't let me die thing. Is like he looks at the um, like there's a grave that says Quarterman before he leaves Africa. Mm, that's his son. Oh shit! Did not know that. So is he buried next to his son? Yeah. Right. And then this so the witch doctor starts to um, perform an incantation, and the thunder strikes, and uh, the the earth starts to move, and it's basically the end of Batman versus Superman. But there was no sequel because everybody hated this film. And it cost 78 million and it made 179 million. There was pressure put on Stephen Norrington to get a summer release because uh, they 
wanted it to be some stuff at Fox wanted it to be released in the fall, but according to the LA Times, Fox already had Master and Commander lined up for the autumn, and they'd they'd be cannibalizing themselves if they put out two big films at that point. Production ran into trouble when a special effects set did not pan out as intended, forcing the filmmakers to have to look quickly for another effects shop. Kevin O'Neill, the man who uh, illustrated the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic, said he believed that the film failed because it was not respectful of the source material. He did not recognise the characters when reading the screenplay and claimed that Norrington and Connery did not cooperate. Finally, O'Neill said that the comic book version of Alan Quatermain was a lot better than the movie version and that marginalising Mina Murray as a vampire changed the whole balance. Because basically she's not a vampire in the book. She's just... Mina Harker. Mina Harker and... Um, Vampire mysterious, but she's certainly... They aren't blatant and straight up like she's definitely a vampire. Look at all these superpowers. So the key issues seem to be, in summation, that they did not fully understand the characters they were working with. They did not trust their audience to either recognise the characters or to be able to keep up with the 19th century themes. They tried to please too many people at once, that's literature fans and popcorn blockbuster fans, both of which they severely underestimated, and ended up making something that would make neither party happy. They did not have a great story to tell. What is at the core here is an old adventurer passing the torch to a younger man, the mistakes of the 19th century giving way to what we know will be the mistakes of the 20th. But on the superficial level they are operating, a master villain plays all sides at once to amass a ridiculous army of super soldiers and fails because his fake league is just about able to defeat him. But all of those ways they achieve something require contrivances. That makes for a deeply forgettable, disposable, flimsy and dissatisfying experience. The script is clunky and clumsy, defying the elegant novels it draws from, and writer James Dale Robinson would have done well to deeply familiarise himself with that language before he tweaked the world to spin it for the 21st century. Instead, everybody simply talks like they are in the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, incredulous, slightly hostile and wishing they were somewhere else. The music by Trevor Jones, often a man capable of amazing scores, lacks any memorable themes or weight and is just the same sound and fury and broody strings that we see on screen. The prop and costume design is admirable, but nobody feels comfortable enough to feel like they aren't actors dressed in costumes. Nobody becomes their character, and Connery's feels the most authentic because he's using his discomfort and regret and anger. And that was brought on by one of the worst aspects of filming, which is that Stephen Norrington, whatever his directorial style was, it clashed with the star. Connery was not happy, and they were at loggerheads with one another. There's almost no way you can rescue a great film out of that. It's been done. Blade Runner, for example, really fantastic film in the end. Everybody was miserable. But it's, it's not likely. And Ridley Scott went on to make many, many films. Stephen Norrington did not. So that's the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It just sort of, it ends with the, oh, maybe Quarterman will be coming back. And they would do well to make any possible remake completely separate from this. I think if they were going to remake it, they'd have to be much more faithful to the books. You completely lose what pre-made audience you have available to you. I mean, not that I'm saying that I think the pre-made audience for this book is particularly huge. I'm thinking a TV show, much like uh, Westworld. Yeah. You know? 
that was very popular. As was as Preacher certainly got a lot of fans. So I think that trying to cram this all into one big movie means you're competing with effects-laden blockbusters. You can build this on character instead. The way Connery plays uh, Quarterman at the end, specifically deflated, regretful, that gives me the pang. That makes me feel um, something towards the movie. And I'll watch it a bunch of more times in my life, probably. Um, it, I don't think it's going to necessarily get better. It might get worse. All in all, it just feels like this colossal wasted opportunity. But still better than it could have been. And many thanks to our special sponsors at the $15 level this month. So that's Abel Savard, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Timothy Green, David Garcia-Abril, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. You guys are all, to us, extraordinary gentlemen. So Chris Finnick, that was our honest summation. We hope you got something out of it. Next week, another commissioned show, our 200th movie episode, and it's one that we dearly love, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. School's, School's out. out. Africa, 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 Africa,